Well, good morning. You're listening to Art Speaks on the EHC in Emory, Virginia. Uh, presentation of William King Museum of Art and Magazine. And our host today is Betsy White, who's going to be having a discussion with Bob Gilmer uh, about our uh, long rifle exhibit, or long rifles in general. Are. So Betsy, why don't you introduce Bob and we'll get started. I'll be glad to. Thank you very much, David. Um, yes, good morning, everybody. And my guest this morning is Bob Gilmer. Bob is known to many people around here, um, mostly as a physician. Um, he's a retired physician of long, many years, and he's a long-term um, generational member of the Southwest Virginia community, particularly from the Russell County area. But what people don't know all, all the time is that he is something of a historian. And um, I talk to him frequently about matters of history. And I know that he was very interested in um, us putting together this exhibition called The Long Rifle in Virginia. So that's what we're going to talk about today is the long rifle and its history here in our region. Before I turn it over to him though, I'd like to just briefly say that this exhibition uh, traces the story of the American settlement west in the Virginia backcountry. It's the storyline itself starts at the very top of the Shenandoah Valley and extends all the way through the Valley of Virginia to our area and through the Cumberland Gap and West. It's an original exhibition and part of our cultural heritage project here at the museum. Like other pieces of material, culture, pottery, textiles, and so forth, the long rifle was made for utility purposes, but yet its makers often sought to make them works of art. In the case of the rifles, it was with decorative carvings, as well as decorative brass, iron, and even silver inlay. The exhibition features about 40 some long rifles, most of which are signed and all of which are at least known the makers for. It also has powder horns, lots of powder horns and other related equipment. One special part of the exhibit is a gun shop, a recreated gun shop. And it includes, you'll not wanna miss this when you come in, this huge piece of equipment called a bellows. It's an original bellows and you can clearly see the date 1787 carved on it. The exhibition has been guest curated by Wallace B. Gussler, who is the original master gunsmith from Colonial Williamsburg and has guest curated several exhibitions for our cultural heritage project and is a known scholar on the long rifle. So Bob, I thought we might begin with the interesting story in 1787 of the short-lived state of Franklin. After the Revolutionary War, when part of the North Carolina state and a little bit of the Tennessee state decided to form a new state, the 14th one, named for Benjamin Franklin. Our Arthur Campbell of Washington County, Virginia, wanted Southwest Virginia to join in in creating this new state. However, there were a few detractors and one of them was the governor of Virginia, who at that time was Patrick Henry. Governor Henry's brother-in-law was William Campbell, our own William Campbell, the hero of the 1780 Battle of Kings Mountain. So the governor likely knew the merits of the long rifle as well as the men who fought on Virginia's frontier. And here is what Patrick Henry said. If this most important part of our territory be locked off, we lose that barrier for which our people have long and often fought that nursery of soldiers from which future armies may be levied and through which it will be almost impossible for our enemies to penetrate. That is a strong statement, Bob. 
What would make Patrick Henry say that? Well, he said it because there is were, were many instances where the men of Southwest Virginia protected Virginia and their families and themselves with the uh, long rifle. The long rifle, as we, as you, as you very certainly know, the famous Battle of Kings Mountain. But there were many other instances where these the, the long rifle came into uh, its importance. The long rifle was first brought to Southwest Virginia by the long hunters, and the long hunters were here to harvest deer skins. There was a very good uh, price to be paid for deer skins. And with them, they brought the, a rather unique rifle with them. And that is the long rifle. The long rifle had uh, its uh, beginnings in Germany where uh, Swiss and German gunsmiths had made a military rifle uh, called the Jaeger that was a rifle, not a smooth bore like a shotgun, but a rifle and was very accurate and had been used in the European wars. And when those men came to America, immigrated, they were asked to make a rifle that suited the American frontier, a hunting rifle. And that's what the American long rifle started out with. It did not begin its, as a military rifle, but rather as a utilitarian uh, rifle for the frontier. Well, that's very interesting. And so what made it so, um, so good here in the back, I guess in the back country of Virginia, there was a lot of mountains, a lot of woods, a whole lot of woods. It was a very wooded area. And as you say, they were hunting deers. So what about the mechanics of the rifle? What made it different from the smooth bore? Well, the, the, the uh, original rifle being a military rifle uh, was short and, 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 and shot a very heavy ball, uh, but the hunters didn't need that. They needed a rifle that was shot fast, uh, I mean, uh, th th that propelled the, the projectile fast, the ball, and they didn't need a big heavy ball. They need, the, their accuracy uh, was the main thing. So uh, the American long rifle was uh, vastly extended from that original Jaeger. And it was a rifle that uh, was carried in the woods by the, by the long hunters. Uh, and it was, as you say, um, very capable of shooting a long distance in this hilly ground uh, when you had a good shot. And, um, and also uh, it was heavy and many times these men would lay down to shoot or they would prop up against a tree uh, that there were plenty of. And uh, so uh, that, that was what the, the hunters needed. And that's what the, the gunsmiths, the gunsmiths of Western, West, Western Pennsylvania and the gunsmiths of the Shenandoah Valley um, made for them. This this unique hunting rifle. So, Bob, were those long hunters Americans who uh, adapted this German weapon, or were these Europeans over here <clears throat> hunting for hides? 
Oh, no, they were Americans, but many of them had come from, from uh, Europe, uh, particularly in this part of the world or the Shenandoah Valley. So many of them had come from Northern Ireland, Ulster. And, uh, and then, then uh, also many of the, the original uh, long hunters were German. Uh, the early long hunters were German uh, and they had come down from uh, Pennsylvania, right down the Shenandoah Valley. Well, Bob, um, uh, back to the mechanics of this um, amazing rifle. And I know from looking at them in the exhibit, how long they are. They are very long. And also, but that whole process of rifling, rifling me, how would you define that word rifling? Well, they were long, Betsy, because uh, the powders at that time took a long time to burn, so to speak, long in terms of the length of the barrel. And so they wanted a long barrel so that the, the, uh, the ball would be propelled uh, for a, a long dent. It would accelerate throughout the length of the barrel. Uh, and and the, the manufacturing the manufacture of the of the um, long rifle again was rather unique for this particular uh, uh, endeavor hunting. Uh, the uh, the the rifle. By the way, I said it was long. It wasn't any definite uh, length. Uh, if you had a custom made rifle at a gunsmith, uh, he would make it. Uh, you would stand, and he would make it as long. <laughs> as tall as your chin so you can look to load the thing <laughs> so you'll notice that on the exhibit there is no standard length um but the the rifle um uh was made of lock stock and barrel the the uh, the lock was hammered out on an anvil and it was a fine piece of of um delicate piece of of ironwork uh, the stock was a very hardy stock made many times of burly maple, which is an extremely hard wood and could take a lot of, of, of abuse, so to speak. Um, and uh, and in, that, in that stock, there would be a patch box where the... the uh, uh, greased piece of paper or thin thin leather would be placed and that was used in loading the ball and then the barrel itself is was also um, the most difficult thing to make uh, and it was made out of a flat piece of iron and hammered into an octagonal shape and that it was an easier thing to do than to try to cut a, a round barrel uh, that was very difficult at the time. So the octagonal barrel, and it was very strong too. And uh, the, the likewise, but the, the octagonal barrel was easy then to fit to the uh, stock. So um, that was one of the reasons that it was made in, in, uh, uh, because you could, you could seat it in the, in the stock very strongly. Oftentimes, as you had mentioned, <clears throat> that there were uh, very decorative carvings and very decorative uh, butt plates and other metal that was placed on it. And, uh, and of course, Curly Maple is known to be a 
a beautiful piece of wood. Yeah. So, Bob, uh, I know that uh, there were tools available to craftsmen back then that would allow you to make uh, parts and carve up wood for a stock and so forth. But to actually put rifling down a barrel that accurately uh, seems like a pretty uh, complex task. What were there already tools available that would allow that well, to happen? You're exactly right. Boring the octagonal barrel was extremely difficult. And, but fortunately they did have uh, the ability to make a good straight barrel and the boring instruments likewise were very accurately straight. And then once it was bored, it would be rifled. And the rifling is the grooving of that inner bore with a circular in a circular pattern. So that when the ball travels down the barrel, it is given a, a spin that will increases the accuracy of the of the of the ball extraordinarily extraordinarily and i can give you some examples of of some demonstrations that that were used that just absolutely the people that weren't familiar with it could not believe it and that included the british <laughs> i i remember someone saying in the course of our exhibition planning i think this is correct that it was so accurate, unlike the regular rifles being accurate at about 50 yards, this is accurate at more like 300 yards. Well, the, the other guns were not rifles. They were smooth bore, yeah. like our modern day shotgun. And, and they were accurate, you're right, 50, 80 yards and could go anywhere. And they were used on the, on the, on the military field. It was a military rifle. They were used on the military field really just to cover the field with lead. Rarely were they aimed. They were just shot at a group of people. Whereas the rifle individuals <laughs> were, were located. Uh, and in the Revolutionary War, a lot of those individuals were the officers of the British. And the British thought that was very unfair. <laughs> well, we're going to take a break in just a second, but before we do, let's have one more, one more thought about that, and then we'll turn our attention to actually its use as a military rifle in the Revolutionary War. And so what you were saying about the other rifles, the military rifles being just sort of scattershot, when, when they got over here into the end of the wars over here, it was a lot of times amongst the trees and the landscape right, and, right. and we were not, it was not the same thing at all. So it really became prominent as a very effective military weapon too. So in a second, we'll turn our attention to that storyline. So you were listening to Art Speaks on WHC at Emory Henry College. And our host today is Betsy White and she is interviewing Bob Gilmer from Russell County about the long rifle and its use and its uh, fact that it's the subject of a seven month exhibit here at the museum that we then encourage anyone uh, who has any interest in uh, that type of uh, weapon and uh, so forth, come and see. Uh, well, so we're back again now and I thought we would switch our conversation over. Uh, and I think I'll start it out with your comment about the um, gunsmiths here used curly maple often with their with their um, stocks. The beautiful and it was beautiful. Not only was it hard, it was beautiful. You'll see a lot of that in these um, guns that you'll see here in this exhibition. And they use that to do a lot of 
really beautiful curly maple carving. Um, in fact, one of the gunsmith's apprentices that we have in our own collection wrote that my boss, John Whiteside, would go up into the hill beyond our shop to cut down the beautiful curly maple trees he loved to use for his guns. So yes, but that also um, talked, talked about the gunsmiths here in this whole entire state of Virginia, the back country of Virginia, were a part of this story. And like everybody who was migrating during the 18th century, as you say, a lot of them coming from Ulster and Germany, most of them, uh, they, they brought their gunsmiths with them or they learned the trade when they got here. And this particular um, rifle was ideal for being made locally uh, in, a, in a forge area. As I said, we have a wonderful bellows in this exhibition, but it was suited to being made locally. And so it did proliferate um, all along the settlement trail of the Shenandoah Valley on out through here, our area and into the Cumberland Gap and West. So it's a, a major piece of the story of the American settlement um, here in Virginia and beyond. And what I'd like to ask you to start with, if you would, is, is, is start with the fact that they were uh, in a different kind of landscape than the usual military battle um, that they were accustomed to perhaps in Europe. And so let's talk a little bit about some of those um, examples of some of those battles. I know that the long rifle itself was used here as early as the uh, French and Indian War, which was of course 1763-ish, and even a little bit even before that, but all of this on the frontier. So Bob, what are some of the interesting and important stories you could tell us there? Well, um, the Europeans were used to fighting on in the treeless Europe that all the trees had been cut down. And so they marched armies at each other and stood there and fired at each other. In this part of the world and on the frontier, as you say, many trees. And of course, the, the, the most notable use that we're familiar here is the uh, use of the long rifle at the Battle of Kings Mountain, in which the, the Virginia militia and the Tennessee militia attacked a Tory army at Kings Mountain up a very, very steep hill, but they had trees that they could go to and, and rest their guns and fire very accurately. And, uh, and in this situation where they were fighting in the trees, it uh, was very advantageous to have that very accurate uh, rifle with them. Now, many of the battles of the Revolutionary War were fought by regular army uh, and usually they were fought on a open area that was uh, surrounded or bordered by woods. And uh, many of the battles, especially the battles of the South and the um, uh, officers of that time, the generals learned to adapt the rifle very, very effectively in that they could use the, the riflemen in the early aspects, in the early stages of a battle as skirmishers. And also they could use them uh, in the 
uh, on the flanks in the woods to uh, to attack the the soldiers much prior to their ability to stand and fire uh, in many and it was used really as a terror weapon. The British uh, soldier was was uh, just uh, appalled that they could be killed. <laughs> So could be shot so quickly, and uh, that was just not done anywhere else in the world. And and there are many battles of the Revolutionary War, uh, such as Saratoga in New York, uh, uh, Cowpens in South Carolina, which uh, the Virginian Daniel Morgan used riflemen with such expertise that he was able to annihilate. Uh, a division of uh, Cornwallis's army. But now that doesn't mean that all the time the riflemen were part of the um, uh, militia, uh, volunteers that showed up for a battle. There were also many of them in the Continental Line, in the Continental Army. And again, they were used very effectively in many battles, especially as they would attack the flank of the of the attacking armies, or they could again weaken the flank as they proceeded uh, to meet the, the, the armies to meet each other and and, and work very effectively. During the siege of Boston, uh, George Washington was running out of powder, and he was running out of lead. <laughs> And he desperately needed somebody, some way to keep the British from attacking him because he couldn't have, he couldn't have stopped them. So he sent to Virginia and, and Daniel Morgan took uh, 600 riflemen to Boston and they proceeded to pick off the British at 300 yards and it just, held them back until Washington got all of his lead and, and, and powder uh, supplies back up. I mean, those are just examples of how they were used in the Revolutionary War. There's one and, example, Bob, that I want, to, I want to be sure people don't miss. There's an artifact in the exhibition that's real relevant to what you're saying. It's an original drawing from 1777 at the battle around Fredericksburg, Virginia, and it's called, it's written in handwritten written notes up at the top, a Virginian rifleman. And it was, it was drawn by a British soldier. And he's just commenting on the Virginia frontiersman who's dressed in his frontier garb. And we have a reproduction of that also in our exhibition. But this particular drawing on loan from the Harlan Crow Library in Texas was drawn on the battlefield. And it was just talking about, they, they called it that long American rifle. And it was, it was something, as you say, I think they were regarded as, as a terror weapon. Yeah, yeah, yes. And- uh, Well, we, and just, so have, we just have a little more, a little few more minutes to talk a little bit. So um, is, I know that uh, the Battle of Kings Mountain, it was in, incredibly important there and all throughout the Revolutionary War. Um, I don't want us to forget to talk about some of the, law, the gunsmiths themselves that were many generational gunsmiths. One that we mentioned here, it was a, had a, a man named Hans Jacob Honecker and 14 gunsmiths in his family over five generations. And this followed that settlement story. 
So it was an incredibly important piece of Americana and a decorative arts object, as well as therefore something that settled the, um, the back country here. So Bob, I want to thank you. Many of those gunsmiths followed the, the pioneers right down the great road of Virginia. And there were many, many gunsmiths. Uh, and, and like I say, they did, they followed their customers. They surely did. In fact, they really uh, traced that settlement story as does this exhibit all the way from the Winchester area down through, um, down through our area and out through the Cumberland Gap. Uh, we also have um, partner exhibits all up the valley, one at the Museum of the Shenandoah Valley in Winchester, one at the, in Stanton at the Frontier Culture Museum, uh, in Roanoke at the Historical Society, and out from here through Martin Station and the Daniel Boone Interpretive Center and the Wilderness Road Museum. So don't miss the museum um, and its exhibit. And Bob, we can't thank you enough for this. This has been most interesting. We can hardly stop. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Bob, my pleasure. I had never heard that story about Washington summoning some uh, Virginia riflemen to Boston. I got to go do some research on that. That was a little piece of history I was completely unaware of. So thanks for telling us that. And thank you for being on the show. The exhibit will be here um, until October the 31st. So everybody has a long time to see it. So we'll welcome you here anytime.